This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David Kirk, and I'm uh, privileged to be chairing this session. We have two presentations this morning. We will first uh, go through the, the, the chatbot session, and then we'll move directly into the, the microinsurance session. And so please jot down, remember, hang on to your questions for afterwards. We will leave plenty of time for questions on, on both of them at, at the end. Uh, I'm going to introduce the three speakers on the, the, the chatbot session first. Uh, starting on my left here, Matt joined PwC's actuarial team uh, with, with me back in the day, actually, after university and spent five years consulting from Cape Town. He got itchy feet after qualifying, <coughs> headed off to Barcelona to complete his MBA and to get a taste of the investment banking world in London, which obviously he didn't like that much because he pretty soon came back, uh, reversing the brain drain trend and decided to come back to South Africa to join Jonathan and help co-found Comparishow. Jono, sitting next to Matt, uh, after an actuarial degree at UCT, Jono's career path took him via two startups, first Zest Life in Cape Town and then to Maui Life, where he was employee number two and helped launch the business and grow the team to over 150 people. Looking for tech-enabled ways to distribute financial services products, John decided the time was right for his own venture and founded Comparisher about two and a half years ago. And then next to Matt is Libba. Uh, Libba Letu is in the final weeks of completing her actuarial degree, so I think it's, it's pretty amazing if somebody's not even yet out of varsity here, so it's a well done. Um, Libba was there on day one with Comparisher as a VAC student and witnessed all the ups and downs that go with the startup rollercoaster life. Libba's thesis this year has been on the topic of language in the chatbot space, and she'll be sharing some of those results with us here today. Um, right, guys, I hand it over to you. Um, uh, let's hear it for, for the comparison, guys. How do you create emotional connection? This is not a very uh, typical actuarial question or problem, but when it comes to buying financial services products, especially complex products, um, it's a precursor. When a broker or a sales agent over the phone speaks to a client, they don't start with product. They start with building rapport, they start with building a, a, a bit of a relationship and creating a, a connection. And the reason for this is that people are more comfortable to judge uh, and trust a person then they are often to make a, a qualified decision on what product is right for them. In a lot of the digital efforts out there, uh, this isn't the case. Uh, so digital efforts go straight into product, it gets complicated very quickly, um, and as such, there hasn't really been a move towards uh, uh, digital, especially within life insurance and underwritten life. It's still mainly distributed through brokers. Uh, if qualifying was an actuary, uh, as an actuary or, or getting your actual degree was one of your proudest moments, please put up your hand. Yo, it should be everyone. <laughs> was you in the wrong room? <clears throat> so qualifying as an actuary, uh, or, or completing my degree, I haven't yet qualified, but completing my degree was one of my, my, my proudest moments. Uh, I, I, I specialised in quantify, 
But when I came out of my degree, I wasn't exactly sure what to do next. Um, so I decided to join a startup where you get a whole bunch of, of everything. I think quite significantly, though, in March uh, 2013, everything changed for me when I took over the, uh, the uh, 60-seater call center at the startup. So very much not the typical actuarial route. I'm sure no one in, the, in this room has the ambition to later take on a call center, but it gets you on the front end in terms of understanding how these engagements are happening. And the question that then came up for me was, can you replicate what happens in a call center environment via a chatbot? Can you build the same emotional connection? Can you drive and push for decisions in the same way that you're able to uh, in a call center? And that's the big question that we've been looking to answer. So I'm sure some of you are wondering why chatbots? Why is this the medium of choice that we focus on? So to touch on some of the reasons, firstly, chatting is second nature. For millennials, Gen Z, the youth, people are very used to communicating via chat. It's very convenient, it's personalized, it's as if you're chatting to an agent. Then data-driven conversation design helps optimize the conversation. Every question is analyzed, drop-off rates, the conversations are tweaked. Then it's a very media-rich channel, so you can send videos, text, um, whatever you want via, via, via chatbots. And finally, they leverage very highly adopted platforms. So Facebook, Instagram, and the like, that's where people are spending their time. That's what people are used to. So delving into a few examples, but before that, what, so what we've built is sort of chatbots that help people access, understand, and buy financial services products, and we entertain them on the way. So let's delve into some of those examples. The Comparison Valentine's Day competition. We launched this Valentine's Day. People were chatting to the bot. So we said to the person, let us help plan your Valentine's Day. Are you single and ready to mingle? Going steady with your boo? Planning a romantic night with hubby? This user says, I'm going steady with my boo. Okay, let's get into it. Would you pick adventure or romance? Adventure. Mmm, something adventurous. Will there be candles? Red wine or two? Share the details. Uh, book an exclusive lodge, rose petals, champagne, and chocolate. The room must have, also, must have candles, and we'll put on lingerie. So, so it's, it's humorous, but there's actually a lot of depth to this conversation. So firstly, people are very willing to share. It's like WhatsApping a friend. What we have found is people struggle not to reply. They almost see it as rude, so they answer. Secondly, it's very intuitive and easy to use versus a website, which would be confusing. Very low tech requirements. And here, we've actually improved our understanding of this customer. We've classified them into single or in a relationship or married. So at the end of the conversation, you can serve them blog content that's relevant to their specific situation, not generically. And then finally, this conversation happened at 5 a.m. So this user is connecting with your brand, having a laugh, sharing their story. I don't know why they were up at 5 a.m., but it's happening. <laughs> Um, another example, getting family funeral cover. So, you know, how much cover would you like to add? 20, 30, 40K. People click on a button, very simplified. So 40K. Let's move on to your family members. Tobojo, you mentioned you have two children. She told us in a previous conversation she has two kids. The bot stores everything. We bring that up now. It's very customized to the user. Special features, your kids under 21 can be added for free. Do you want to add your kids to the quote? Yes, please. Great, what's your first child's name? 
I'm out of battery. So this conversation stopped a bit abruptly, but again, a lot of depth behind what's happening here. So it's very easy to highlight product features and demonstrate value to the user. The psychology and question order is critical. You know, the first thing we say is your kids can be added for free. You know, then the user thinks, great, you know, he has a nice benefit versus the information that gets lost on the website often. And then finally, machine learning getting applied to reducing errors. In the past, it would have taken am out of battery and then said, is am out of battery surname also whatever. But now the, the bot can detect, okay, there's multiple words. It's not a first name. Try again. Please give another, another response. But interestingly, we've come across several language challenges. So the chatbot was initially only in English. And then we see things like this. Who would you like to add to your quote next? We give the user options. Spouse is a word people have struggled with. So we say, a spouse is your husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, or partner. And then this user says, I really want my daughter to be my spouse, please. So, so <laughs> you know, you, you're kind of wondering what's going on here. But clearly, a language barrier. Another, another interesting example, can you confirm your first name per your ID is freedom? A lot of times your Facebook name is different to your, your actual name on your ID. We need your real name for the product. This person says, no, fine, no problem. What is your first name as per your SA ID? Come again, I'm not understand because it writes bombastic words. So, again, you know, for us in the room, it's, you kind of laugh, but then you just step back and say, you know, clearly there's a user comprehension problem. What is the role of language in this situation? You know, if you talk about TCF, are consumers being provided with clear information? To most people in the room, these questions are very clear, but evidently people struggle. And then finally, in terms of certain objectives, uh, providing financial education, promoting financial inclusion, you know, can chatbots be a driver of this financial inclusion and change? Um, otherwise, what you end up with is people that have a policy document that looks like that. And I'm sure we can all agree that is definitely not a desirable situation. So one thing we have found is that the chatbot is only as good as its ability to communicate, both from a cognitive and an effective perspective. From a cognitive perspective, when people are communicating in their home language, it's much easier for them to process the information and to share information while giving less errors, which is very important when dealing with chatbots. From an effective perspective, when someone is speaking to you in your home language, this makes you feel comfortable. You feel like you know that person, like your values and your cultures are similar, and that establishes trust. And trust is essential in the financial services industry. And when this happens in spaces where the option to communicate in your home language was previously not available, this actually makes, like, makes you feel like you're acknowledged and you're accepted. And for a lot of people, it's not even a case of conducting the whole conversation in their home language, but by merely acknowledging their home language, acknowledging their culture, this makes they themselves feel acknowledged. We conducted a study to analyze the effect of language when selling and marketing funeral policies using a chatbot. So the first thing we had to establish was, do people even want to communicate in their home language? So to our surprise, what we found was that more than 50% of users actually prefer to communicate in their home language. This, however, was not true for Sesutu and Sepedi users. They did prefer to communicate in English. An interesting result that we found was that, in line with past research, by merely acknowledging a person's home language, this can significantly improve conversion rates. 
In order to test this, we split people into two groups at random. One group went through the standardized English script, and then the other group at the beginning of the conversation was asked, what is your home language? And would you prefer to communicate in that language? Thereafter, the feedback was acknowledged and the conversation continued exactly the same in the English version of the script. What we found was that when people were communicating, um, when people actually had the option initially to communicate in their home language, an act that acknowledged their home language, this significantly improved conversion rates. Conversion rates went up from 7% to 9%, and the p-value of significance was 0.35. We then went on to analyze the effects of language when we actually communicate and conduct the whole conversation in that person's language. So in order to do this, we translated the English version of the script into Isi Zulu, and thereafter, when Isi Zulu speakers were asked if they preferred to communicate in their home language, they were not able to do so. What we did find was that when um, users were communicating uh, with the chatbot in Isi Zulu, they did make significantly more errors. The p-value was less than 0 0.001. Um, this was probably because this was a first attempt at an Isi Zulu script, whereas the English version of the script had been adjusted over the course of the study to um, eliminate as many errors as possible. We then went on to analyze what happens with conversion rates when users are communicating in their home language rather, rather than in English. So what we found was that there wasn't a significant difference, although there were higher conversions when people were communicating in, in Isi Zulu. This was quite interesting to find because although people struggled to go through the whole process and they made more errors, they still made similar um, conver conversion rates. So this points to the fact that maybe if we actually work on the Isizuli script and minimize errors as well, we could, we could see significant improvements in conversion rates. So essentially, what we found was that by merely acknowledging someone's home language and then going further to actually conduct the conversation in that language, the chatbot was able to break language barriers and to build an emotional connection that a native-speaking um, call center agent could have otherwise connected with. Thank you. Okay, so quite a big question is how will bots uh, impact the workforce. Um, when we first set out uh, uh, to build the bot, it was used as a facilitator in the sales process. Um, by the time the person showed intention to purchase, we immediately passed them on to a call center agent. And at that stage, I, you know, I personally had a nervousness of saying, okay, now they want the policy and we can't really afford uh, uh, to mess it up. In the most recent months, however, uh, the human sales that are made account for only 17% of the total sales that we are making. And we found that the bot is actually much more effective uh, at closing, three to five times more effective at closing the policy than the human. For simple reasons like the human just types too slowly and the user on the other side gets frustrated and, and leaves. So our starting theory was to build bots to assist humans in their, uh, in their processes. And we've since shifted to humans assisting the bot. Whenever the bot gets stuck, someone will jump in uh, and help out.
Okay. So how do we train the bot? How does the bot become smarter over time? So what we found is that, and it was almost by mistake, cert at, at certain times, uh, people had phones and they couldn't see the options that were available to them. So they'd write it in their natural language. So you'd ask, what is your highest level of education? And someone would reply, standard nine. We would then rephrase the options so they actually had to type them out. Um, so giving the options, for example, no matric, matric, diploma, and degree. The bot then, after a few of those cases coming through, um, will check with an administrator uh, and ask the question, they, ans uh, they answered standard nine, I think they meant no metric, am I correct? As soon as the administrator gives the go-ahead in future, they'll take standard nine or similar cases and automatically classify it so that there's not that stepwise repeat process we don't understand what's going on. And it's interesting because if you do want to learn, you can randomly not show people the options and then learn how they better respond uh, in natural language. Uh, so since we implemented, we've almost had 5,000 error reductions um, and many of those would have ended up uh, an administrator having to jump into the process. We then also have administrator-related training. So uh, this question asks, who would you, which family member would you like to add to your policy next? And uh, the person replies, my wife. Uh, that is not a, a valid option. And the agent then says, actually confirmed my partner or my spouse. And from now on, the bot can uh, can, knows that when someone says my wife, they actually mean my partner. And automatically that's not going to be a, a load for the administrator. So the administrator doing their normal job, um, the result is that those jobs stop getting sent to the administrator completely. And this, uh, this is currently done on a word basis um, and, and for simple examples, but you should be able to monitor entire processes. Um, and, and once the bot sees what process solves the solution, it auto automatically takes over from, from the admin. Okay. Are people actually engaging with chatbots? So since our launch of the chatbot, we've, had, uh, we've just crossed the 100,000 um, mark. So we've had more than 100,000 people uh, talking with our chatbot. Um, in terms of conversion rates, in the early days, uh, it was less than a percent of people who wanted to quote that actually purchased the policy. Um, obviously, quite a lot of errors within the script and, uh, and also um, the human playing the role of jumping on. Uh, but over time, we've been able to increase it to 5.7%. This is a month-on-month -month conversion rate. So if someone starts a quote in August, 5.7% 5, 5 of them com complete the quote. When we take that over a long period with, with uh, retargeting, we see a, a significant uplift. So users that have been chatting and engaging with us over time, um, for a 12-month pe uh, period, we've been converting at 13%. 
Human agents, um, there's a whole lot that goes to getting someone into the call center. You need to recruit, train, accredit. Uh, um, you need your office space, PC, desk, telephony. You need trainers, team leaders, HR, leave allowances, and they only work for, for part of the day, <laughs> which is reasonable. Um, with a bot, all you need is clients to come in. Once you've got the formula working, it's, it's essentially infinitely scalable. Um, so when we launched, as we said, the humans, uh, humans were involved. If we assume that one agent makes 50 sales per month, which is uh, reasonable, then in month one, we had half an agent uh, playing. Okay, and then over time, increasing <clears throat> our sales, we had more and more bots in the process, and in recent months, increasing to where bots make up the majority of our sales, 85%. Okay. Okay, so we essentially our business has three human agents, 19 bots, and one administrative support agent. So the administrator working with the bot, um, a human agent picks up the phone, uh, an administrator tries to redirect them into the bot. And this is a look at how sales have grown through the process. Obviously, if this was a traditional business, um, the money that you'd require to scale it up and, uh, and build out a call center would be impossible to achieve uh, at the small scale that, uh, uh, that we've done this. So in terms of what, what our solution looks like or, or how we bring it together, this is often the traditional model that's used. So people will push digital traffic from Google or Facebook onto a website or a landing page. You see huge drop-offs at the website uh, uh, stage already. 60 to 80% of people land on the page and exit without clicking a button. Lead forms today, I think most people don't want to give away their phone number because once your phone number's out there, you never know if you're going to be able to use it again. Um, uh, so, uh, so you see high drop-offs there. When those numbers actually get into the call center, a lot of them just go straight to voicemail because they're fake numbers. When you eventually do call a client, um, they're often busy in meetings. They, they tell you to call you later. When you call them later, they see your number and they, they don't answer. So it's a horrible loss of conversion in the process. So all we're looking to do is to go straight from the online ad to the chatbot, uh, deliver uh, the entire product uh, and, and user journey, and have administrators and use, uh, humans jump in when it gets stuck. And uh, our business model is to actually build that channel internally with companies uh, in their standard platforms on the one side, so direct-to-consumer uh, from the brand without any comparison. Um, and then on the other side, we're building a marketplace where we can then deliver those journeys through our own advertising efforts uh, to clients. These are the numbers that, uh, that a lot of people worry about. What are your lapse rates? What are your costs? What's happening along the way? 
Uh, we're going to save that for now. If you'd like to find out more about that, we'd love you to connect with us. Thank you. Right. Thank, thanks, guys. That, that, this is the second time I've heard that, and it still is competing. You see, I've got like a long stack of questions. So if you do have questions, please hang on to them. Don't forget them. We will get back to them in just a little while. Uh, Nabila is going to join us next, talking about uh, the journey to, I guess, convert a microinsurance license. Uh, so Nabila is a life actually working at Deloitte. I mean, she's working at Deloitte, but I've hired her twice and tried for a third time, so we've got a little bit of history there as well. Uh, she served on the microinsurance committee for ASA for the last six years, with me, she's the chair of the uh, current chair of the Actual Women's Committee, and is on the Asaba Exco. So, I'm not really sure where she gets time to do anything else, but we're happy to have you here. Nabila enjoys the consulting environment with the challenges that it brings. is goal-oriented and always curious, wanting to explore and learn. When Nabila is not working, she's spending time with her family, travelling the world, and curling up with a good book. <clears throat> Although, with a four-year-old daughter and another baby on the way, the last one doesn't always happen. Um, I'm sure people have told you that the second child does not double the work, just so you're fully aware of that. Nabila, let's hear about microinsurance. Thank you, David. Um, so I'm going to chat to you today about the journey to becoming a microinsurer. But because this is a dual session, I just wanted to get an idea from the room. Who knows what microinsurance is? You can just raise your hand. Okay, cool. So quite a few people. Great. Um, so today I'm going to talk about the need for microinsurance, what microinsurance is, and why you should consider getting a microinsurance license, a little bit about the license application process, some challenges and quick wins around that. And I'm going to do this using the life cycle of an ant for no particular reason other than it is micro. <laughs> Cool. So to promote sustained economic growth and development, South Africa needs a stable financial services sector that is accessible to all. The reality is that the poor are often excluded from the formal insurance market due to accessibility restrictions. Cue the curtains, turn on the spotlight, in comes microinsurance. Microinsurance is physically accessible because the distribution channels and marketing are targeted to the lower income market. It is intellectually accessible because the products will be simple and easy to understand. And it is financially accessible because the premiums will be affordable to the lower income market. Um, so what are some of the objectives of microinsurance? Financial inclusion, so extend extending access to the lower income markets, so providing them with good value formal insurance products that are, that are appropriate to the needs of the lower income households, um, formalizing or facilitating the formalization of currently informal providers, lowering the barriers to entry uh, for broader market participation, and enhanced consumer protection through appropriate prudential and business conduct regulation, uh, improved uh, enforcement of, of regulatory transgressions, and consumer education that's targeted around understanding what insurance is and its associated risks and benefits. Okay, so now the eggs have been laid, um, and we know what the objectives of microinsurance are and the need for microinsurance, but what is <coughs> microinsurance? Some of the features of microinsurance are a contract term of 12 months or less, so short-term contracts. Um, more affordable premiums, which result from 
a smaller sum assured, so these are capped for the low-income market, limited to risk products only. What this means is there's no savings, no loyalty, no claims discount, no premium refunds, unless you get special approval from the regulator. There are fewer exclusions, with suicide being uh, the main one. Uh, small margins due to the small premiums, which means that microinsurers need to have large volumes in order to be successful. Claims are settled quickly, typically within 48 hours once uh, all the information has been provided to the insurer. There are restrictions on the waiting periods. So a waiting period is the shorter of a quarter of the policy term or six months. Currently, composite insurers no longer exist, so microinsurance is the only license where you can sell both life and non-life products. And there are lower upfront capital requirements. So the minimum capital requirement for a microinsurer is 4 million rand or 15% of the uh, net written premiums, um, whichever one is smaller. Um, this is significantly lower than the current uh, life and short-term uh, capital requirements, which are around 15 million. So now your egg is hatched and, oh, sorry, um, now your lava um, is now fully formed and we're moving on um, to consider why should you get a microinsurance license? We know what microinsurance is, we know the needs for microinsurance, but why is it applicable to you? Capital reserving and operational requirements are less onerous. So I mentioned the minimum capital requirement is a lot less. So if you're selling short-term, low-benefit products, um, selling it under a, sh a short-term license or a long-term license, the capital requirements are unnecessarily high. Uh, reserving calculations are simple formula-based. And an example of the operational requirements that are less onerous is that a separate risk or remuneration committee um, doesn't need to be formed. If you want the full detail on these requirements, you can look through the financial soundness standards for microinsurers or the FSMs, or the governance and operational standards for microinsurers or the GOMs. Um, next, not necessary to appoint a full-time actuary. Because of the less onerous requirements that I've just mentioned, you don't need to have a full-time actuary, um, so your costs are lower. Microinsurance is uh, new or relatively new uh, and growing rapidly, um, so you can have a competitive advantage by getting in there before your competitors. Microinsurance is seen as a social good um, and is associated with consumer protection, so this could have reputational benefits for you. Uh, access to a risk pool that may not have been accessible before, so the lower income market. Um, and the nature of microinsurance lends itself to digital innovation, which can then be applied to other service lines within your business. Um, right, so now your lava's turned into pupa, and we've decided we want a microinsurance license, but how do we go about doing that? So there are three main parties um, that would be interested in applying for microinsurance licenses. The first one is new license applications. So these could be call centers, uh, burial societies, funeral parlors, um, or similar-sized entities. Uh, the next would be an insurance group that's looking to add a microinsurance license to their group. And the third is a conversion from an existing license, um, so a current life or short-term insurer that is looking to move uh, to a microinsurance license. Um, so uh, in, in the research for this presentation, I managed to speak to at least one party under each of these headings, 
and it is resoundingly clear that the level of effort, depending on where you're coming from, uh, differs significantly. So a new license application would be the most effort, and a conversion from a current license would be the least effort, with um, the additional entity and insurance group um, gaining some uh, efficiencies from the group itself, so they fall somewhere in between. Okay, the actual license application process is four stages. So your initial meeting with the regulator, the submission of your application, and then engagement with the regulator, and then the approval process within the regulator itself. So your initial meeting with the regulator, that's a meeting with the Prudential Authority and the FSCA, um, where they get an understanding of who you are and what you want to do, why do you want a microinsurance license, and then you can also get from them what the application process involves and, why, uh, um, and, and what you need to do in order to, to get your license. Um, so this meeting, I think, is particularly important for a new uh, application um, and maybe less so for a, con a conversion because they already the regulator has already engaged with you on multiple occasions and they know where you come from, um, but there is an initial meeting um, that is set up. From there, you move on to the submission of an application. There is an application form that is available that you'd need to fill out. Some of the things that you'd need to fill out as part of the application form or need to submit with the application form would be a five-year business plan, your transformation plan, um, proof that your company uh, exists. And then once you've submitted your application, the regulator has 120 days to get back to you on whether your application has been approved or denied. Okay, engagement with the regulator. After you've submitted, the regulator could ask for a meeting where they ask you to take them through your application. Um, alternatively, if your application doesn't have um, certain requirements or uh, they require additional information, the regulator will send you an email requesting that information, um, and it is important to note that the clock stops for the regulator until you send them all the required information, and then they'll continue on um, with the rest of the time till the 120 days. Approval process. Uh, so within the regulator, the heads of each department sit on a panel, and it's called the licensing tunnel, um, where they decide and look at all the information you submitted on whether you can be approved as a microinsurer. If they're happy with all the information you submitted and they decide to approve, then off you go as your little ant to sell your microinsurance products out into the market. If, however, uh, your, uh, your application is denied, this does not mean it's the end for you. Um, you can still engage with the regulator. They may have queries or require additional information, and then you can resubmit your application thereafter. Okay, some challenges of the process based on the experiences of um, the insurers or the applicants that I've interviewed is insufficient in-house insurance experience. So this is particularly relevant for new in, uh, applicants who don't have um, experience or understanding of what it takes to run an insurance company. Um, so here you might have to partner with uh, an external person who has some experience or can provide you with some insight. Insufficient structures in place. Again, if you're brand new, you don't have things like forensic departments or claims management departments. And some of these may be more difficult to outsource than, for example, your head of actuarial function. A restricted investment strategy. So microinsurance uh, restricts the investments that you can hold. You need to hold cash or cash-like instruments. If you do want to hold uh, other instruments, then you would have an additional capital requirement, a market risk capital component, on top of the capital that I mentioned 
uh, earlier. So this is particularly re relevant for those insurers who are converting their license um, because you may need to relook at your investment strategy. Policyholder protection rules are being applied quite strictly. Um, so for a new insurer, you would make sure that your, policy, your policies are compliant with the policyholder protection rules. But if you're converting your license, you may need to relook at your policy wording to ensure that it's still relevant um, and still meets the policyholder protection rules. Regulatory templates are a work in progress. There currently are no microinsurance specific templates that exist online. Um, if you would like the uh, draft application, pro, a draft application, you can engage with the regulator to get this. Um, it is also worth noting that the conversion workbooks don't specifically cater for microinsurance. You'd have to make a few tweaks to it and add in a few comments for the regulator if you are using the conversion workbook to apply for your microinsurance license. Uh, we've experienced some delays in feedback from the regulator, or it, it can take time to get feedback from the regulator because this is new. So if you are planning to apply for a microinsurance license, give yourself the 120 days. Okay, some advice or some quick wins based on the uh, experience are that ensure your business case is sound. Make sure there are no holes in it before you take it to the regulator. Engage with the regulator upfront to obtain the draft application form. Start with the simpler products and then move on to the more complicated or innovative products uh, once you've established. And this one came straight from the regulator that please use uh, realistic projections. What they find is often people send, um, send them optimistic projections that project their premium volumes increasing significantly in the first five years and they don't realize that your capital requirement then also increases significantly in the first five years. So that one came straight from the regulator. Uh, I have one more to add that's not actually on the slides and, th and that is that currently there are no application fees uh, to apply for a microinsurance license because these are still being finalized by the regulator. So if you are on the brink of applying for a microinsurance license, now is a good time to do it. <laughs> okay, um, some other considerations for you to take into account are <coughs> that the minimum capital requirement is still high for some people. So yes, it's lower in comparison to the current insurers, but four million rand is not um, an amount that can be sneezed off. So I think that this is still going to be a barrier for the informal, um, the informal providers currently to then move over to a microinsurance license. The next one is uh, the topic that's on everybody's lips and uh, plaguing your dreams, I'm sure, is IFRS 17. Um, so currently, any entity that sells insurance contracts would need to uh, um, apply IFRS 17. Um, there was a little let me say, a uh, glimmer of hope uh, in the stock cloud in that uh, a question was asked to me on whether insurers could use IFRS for uh, small, medium, small and medium enterprises or IFRS for SMEs. Um, and my research into that has said that probably not um, because insurance companies uh, serve the public interest. Um, but that would be something to look into further if you are considering avoiding the IFRS 17 completely. Uh, and the last one is the head of actuarial function. So micro, all microinsurers require a microinsurance head of actuarial function. And the microinsurance head of actuarial function requires a microinsurance practicing certificate. 
Um, the good news is that if you are a life or short-term practicing certificate holder, um, it should be relatively easy for you to get a microinsurance practicing certificate. Uh, the microinsurance practicing certificate requirements are a lot less onerous than the short or life um, practicing certificates. For example, you only need to be an associate member of the actuarial society with appropriate experience uh, rather than being a fellow. The last thing I want to leave you with um, is we've all been waiting for something that's going to come along and change the way we do insurance and change the way we work and the way we view the industry. So is microinsurance a disruptor? Is it going to be, uh, is it going to meet the objectives and the needs of microinsurance? Only time will tell. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Lamilo. All right, we are doing well for time, but I think there will be plenty of questions. So we can now take questions. There will be roving mics. Please do wait for a, a mic to, to get to you. Any questions? Otherwise, I'll just go for my 20. There we go. There's a question coming up there. And Bijo, just be clear who you're asking the question to. Hello, I'm uh, Neil. Just a question for Jonathan. Um, on the coding side, do you outsource the coding or do you do your coding yourself? Uh, we, yeah, we built the whole thing ourselves. To answer the question, do you want some more detail? Yeah, no, 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 I was just uh, interested. Okay. Yeah, so and then maybe while I've got the mic, um, <laughs> Nabila, question for you. Um, the, the capital requirement is, is $4 million, but what do you think is the actual startup cost capital that you require when you take into account systems and people and so on to actually get this off the ground? Sure. I haven't run the... Sorry, can you hear me? Sorry, Neil. I haven't run um, the numbers, Neil, but I would say in order to run an insurance company or this micro-insurance company, you'd need 10 to 20 million a year, and to me that doesn't sound like very micro be honest. Um, thanks for two very interesting presentations. Just a question to the chatbot guys. So um, it's multi-layered, but I think I'll get to the point soon. Um, I'm assuming that you want to ideally conclude the whole sales process using this bot technology um, or platform. Um, Sort of loaded question, do you typically then take um, a customer or potential customer through a structured process using the conversation technique or do you allow customers to shape and then you come back and fill the gaps that you haven't filled? And I think specifically referring to minimum statutory disclosures because I can just imagine that while it's, it's maybe a light-hearted in your own language conversation, at some stage you're going to reach a point and you say, Okay, we need to talk about some minimum stuff, which is not necessarily what the customer wants to talk about. So just, I mean, how do you deal with that whole sale process, including dealing with minimum disclosures? Um, okay, so I, I think what we do is we try to base it as much on a call center conversation as possible. Um, so you, you very much say the same things that a call center agent would do. You get them to agrees and, uh, agree to various T's and C's. You can push them off to a website to check um, what they are agreeing to. So, um, and, and I think it's, a, it's actually can be more effective than a call center in that respect because with a call center, often you can't quality assure every call, so you don't know. Um, and, and there is a tolerance for people forgetting to say things or, or not following the process. Um, 
Yeah, so I think that's the, that was the one part. Yeah, and then it is a very structured conversation. So I think that's where a lot of chatbots go wrong. You start with, what do you want to do today? And you say something and the thing's like, I don't understand. So we're very structured, very deliberate, taking guys on, on a specific journey right to conclusion um, in the chatbot. Initially, I think, as we said, we thought, you know, for bank details, that's quite personal. Guys won't do it in Facebook. Give them a call. You know, but we found people are willing to share and people go right through to the end. Yeah, I, I think just one other point is that, um, yeah, we've started to, in, in the early days, if we wanted to make a script change, for example, the admin would find something that they think needed changing and they would shout across the room to a developer and be like, please, <laughs> please just make this change. Now it goes through a formal approval process, so the administrator will will in the bot, um, which is a company-facing bot, uh, propose the change. It will go forward uh, for approval. We can then monitor as well what the impact of the change was on conversion before and after. So there's a lot of control that you have over the, the, the process. Okay, who's next? Here we go. Okay. Thank you. Uh, question for uh, Jonathan, yeah. Yes. So uh, I like the work you guys are doing. Uh, my question is, how easy is it to build complex products into this, uh, factoring in uh, levels of consumer education on financial products? Because uh, the other time we did some research uh, on Twitter, and we saw that people complained when they had to pay excesses because they bought policies, but they didn't understand the underlying implications around them. Uh, and we're seeing now in the UK the regulators of the view, because of the disintermediation that happened, that a lot of the policies in place are misold. So how easy is it to build complex products to be sold through channels like this and to embed uh, consumer education? So almost in someone's language to explain that uh, this is an excess, this is how it works, or these are the exclusions, this, uh, you're not covered for certain things, for example. Um, yeah, so, so I think... Um, I mean, what we found, because we actually started off with underwritten life um, policies, we, we sold a few hundred, but as all the efficiency we built up on the front end of the bot process fell apart um, uh, on the back end when you then had to go through the, uh, all the formal processes. I think the ability to build uh, a complexity um, uh, into like I don't see it as too hard. I think you can enhance a lot of things by pushing media across at different stages. When the client falls in a certain category, I think it does make sense to hand over to someone that can just be like, okay, did you understand this? Do you understand that? So we do also do courtesy calls on on sales just so that they have that that final bit of understanding. So um, what actually prevents uh, introducing complexity at this stage is that the, the product providers have to change their processes so significantly to fit in with ours and that, uh, that it's almost impossible. But the systems are often not designed to speak to each other um, uh, it, and, and then you move on to the human side and I think end-to-end -end is the goal. It's got to be the standard model, otherwise it just doesn't work. Because in, in America now, in the auto market, they have realized that maybe you need a mixture of uh, human and person. So they have uh, like an omni-channel where you have the option to gather 
probably caught, but then you will finalize the cover by speaking to a human being who will explain the, uh, the products and the implications. So is it possible using this tech to yeah. seamlessly, without having to ask the person everything again? Yeah. So if there's something that they don't understand, uh, yeah. they can probably get an option to say, okay, I'm not clear about this. Yeah. And they get to speak to someone who doesn't uh, yeah. take them from zero again. Yeah, 100%. So, so I think what, what we found with certain uh, chatbots uh, out there, you ask a question, it goes, I don't know how to answer your question, and then you never actually use it again. Um, in our processes, we generate tickets from the first conversation, low-priority tickets when people are doing low-priority activity. As quickly as possible, we try to prioritize those clients with the biggest intention of uh, purchasing. Uh, if they get stuck at any stage for whatever reason, uh, something pops up to say, you can see you're stuck, uh, would you like to, to speak to an agent? And depending on where they are in the process, we very quickly jump on. Um, so, so it's not, um, you, you, you want 80% 80, 80 of your clients that don't have a, a problem to go through, but you're not, you never, I, I don't think you're going to get 100% of the cases solved via the chatbot. So we've definitely built it to say this is combined. That's why it's not 20 chatbots and zero humans. It's 20, 20 chatbots, three agents and administrators. And, uh, so are they also able to do the servicing after post-conversion? Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I, it's easier in many cases to, to automate the servicing as, as well because um, a lot of processes um, are, are quite simple. It's, it's, it does become a point of how much of the journey do you control? When are you handing it over to the provider? Um, so we, 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 we're playing around um, with that. I mean, one thing we found as well is that a lot of people don't have an email address and it's a current requirement. Um, and I think for many people, they'll never have an email address because they go, why would I have an email if I can do my stuff over WhatsApp or, or Messenger? So I think there's also opportunity to people, for people to reassess uh, what those requirements are, because it's easy to ping guys and get them to do uh, do more things automatically. One last thing to add quickly: the conversations are very dynamic, <coughs> so it's not a static process. So, for example, we've seen okay, a lot of people are asking about X, Y, Z. At the end of the process, let's have an FAQ, let's have a specific bot to handle that. And because you're getting so much feedback, and because every question is stored, you can analyze what people are looking for, which is quite exciting. Okay. Thanks. Do you have further questions? Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for your presentations, everyone. Uh, question for Jonathan. Typically, how long are these uh, conversations with the bot? How many minutes okay. does it take to close a sale, or or can it does it go on for days before anyone? And yeah. Yeah. It's um. So we've been surprised how long people are happy to chat away. So the average sale from first quote to conclusion is about 30 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes. Sometimes people go away and come back the next day. You can kind of follow up with reminders. Um, but there's no, we found people out, people very willing to take the time. It's almost, you know, it's, almost, it's quite an engaging process. It's not, uh, it's not boring. If the thing makes jokes, it kind of pulls you in. So 
people, yeah, very happy to chat. And, and the products you sell, you know, the people want the product often built for digital. It's well priced. So, yeah. Which is, these, these jokes are a chatbot <laughs> joke coded by actuaries. <laughs> Exactly. It gets well. well, well, well I, I mean, I mean, one example um, is that is that when we ask the user how many kids do you have, and they go th three, the chatbot answers, "Oh, I've got two kids," and uh, uh, three must be tough. Which some people say, like, "But you're a robot. How can you have kids?" And it's like, "No, but I wrote it, and I've got two kids." And so this is just a projection of me talking to you. And I think that's a very different way of looking at, at, at what the chatbot uh, is. It's, it's able to capture the way that you'll have a discussion with someone. I think what it means as well is that for the average person, they, they now have access to actuaries to solve simple problems that tradition, uh, traditionally get handled by, you know, the, the criteria to sell uh, a funeral cover, as I understand it, is that you need to a uh, grade 10 and, and show some ability to, to be able to read and, and do bas basic arithmetic. Whereas, so you are elevating the experience that the consumer has. I mean, on the, on, on the topic of people re-engaging with us, I mean, there's some conversation. I thought it would be like they would do the conversation and then it would be sort of yes or no. I mean, there, there are times where you scroll up and you just never find the end of the conversation. The people quote and requote and requote and requote, and then like four months down the line, they decide uh, uh, to buy. So I think there's, yeah, there was a lot more engagement than, than, than we initially expected on, on the same process. And then just in terms of your. Your sales to date, what LSM do most of your sales fall in? Yeah, so so mostly on the lower uh, LSM side. I mean, as I said, we started with the underwritten life, um, and 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 most of those are are higher LSM. Um, uh, so so yeah, there, <clears throat> there are a few a few hundred uh, fully underwritten uh, guys, but our focus now is more um, uh, on the bottom end of the market. And again, it's a it's a product simplicity thing more from the side of it's easier to get within the product provider system if the product's simple. Um, I, I don't think there's an inherent, uh, there'll be an inherent struggle, for example, to offer a mid-market uh, mid live product, which is something that we'd like to bring on board. Yeah. And if you don't have an email address, how do you get your policy documents? Yeah, at, at the moment we, we give them a tutorial to set up a Gmail account. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we hope that they get through. I mean, what, what's, what's a little bit dangerous there is that it's a requirement and you think, okay, I mean, guys just make up email addresses. They'll put like their name, dot surname at gmail.com and then you'll send the documents there and the person goes, this is a scam because it was just another person with the same name. You know, so, so they, you know, they're just making making it up and you don't know the difference. I mean, another thing that we've run into is a lot of people will say like, my email address is www.jonathan at gmail.com and you go, is, it could be right. Maybe, maybe like you look at it and you go, that's invalid, but maybe when they set up their Gmail account, they, they, they use www. And then they, so, so I think those are, like as much as possible, we're trying to keep them though in the, uh, in the messenger platform because, yeah, it's, yeah. Just the off-topic question. 
What other things do you think you can sell using a chatbot? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I think um, I think anywhere where you have a call center, um, you, you know. So I, I think travels maybe one example. Online education courses could be another example. Um, I think our focus is obviously on the financial side, but we are looking to build the system that we can actually hand over and say, you know, other, let's give the ability to adapt the scripting um, uh, to the product provider so that they have ultimate ownership versus trying to build it out uh, uh, for, for, for everyone, so a facilitative solution. And it doesn't have to stop at product, it could be an experience, it could be basic financial literacy, you know, sign up to the course, it's going to be in your own language, it's going to be sponsored by somebody, you know, promoting that, because to get that access, to get that out to people, you know, everyone's on Messenger, it's an amazingly powerful tool. And I think with the structuring and the conversation and language and media and videos, it's kind of, you know, where's your imagination stop in terms of what you could put out there? So I think that's what we're quite excited about. Do you have a phase license? Do you need a phase license to, to sound like this? Um, so, so we are registered FSP <coughs> um, uh, uh, on the life side. So we, we, we are able to, to give advice and, and sell product. Um, yeah, I, I think the um, I think on the regulatory side, there, there are quite a lot of questions that come in. You know, for example, it's it's quite difficult to get guys through their RE exams, um, and I think it's it's quite an industry-wide problem, especially in the call center space. Um, you obviously can't send the bot to do an RE exam, um, and so so I think the regulation as it stands is that the key individual. Um, uh, is responsible for the algorithms behind any advice that's given and the, the service that's that's provided. Um, yeah. I think Joe's been waiting relatively patiently for a question. <coughs> I've got a mic. <laughs> um, hi. Um, so some of the questions have been asked and answered because you're being interrogated. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, so for me, I, I really like chatting to a bot. Uh, I just like an honest bot. Uh, and I think... Um, uh, Seeing the scripts that you guys, I think I would be able, and most people are able to tell I'm, I'm talking to a bot, and I don't know whether it says, hi, I'm that, whatever, uh, chatbot. Uh, but do you think all your users know they're talking to a chatbot, and do you think that there's anything about that that's, that, yeah. that you need to consider? And do you think people would feel differently or act differently if they knew, or if they, yeah. you, know, if, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, if you change that, that dynamic. Yeah. I, I think we're definitely not uh, trying to fool the user into thinking we're not a bot. Um, but, but I think, uh, you, you know, I, I can remember a, spot, a response at the end of the conversation where the user's like, oh, my word, you're a robot. You're a, and you go like, how did you not pick this up <laughs> beforehand? It, it, seemed quite, uh, it seemed quite obvious. I think the other thing is that you can explain that you're talking to a robot, but it can also then just throw off the whole, the whole thing. So, yeah, you, you'd hope that guys get a sense that it's, it's, it's a robot and the majority of people um, understand that. Yeah. I like it when they, they have a name like something chatbot yeah. and then you kind of, you've been warned. Um, yeah, yeah. I have, I've, had I've had conversations online with people who I'm sure were bots yeah. but would not admit it even when accused <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's quite, uh, um, because how, how much, 
you know, how much can you actually put into the pot? You know, like if you, for example, say, well, you know, a lot of what's happening in social media and uh, and, and many communications are very one-way orientated. So, you know, a celebrity can push something out uh, and then people like it and maybe comment, but they don't really get a reply. Um, I think there's quite a lot of scope to say, okay, well, now let's figure out, like, the gist of you, how you respond, and let's let's botify you. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, I've certainly felt that sense from what, what the script that I've built personally, that you can get a lot of, um, you, you, you can uh, give a lot of emotion out and you can build a connection. And you, you actually feel it while you're building the script. You, you're thinking of every different outcome and, and what the appropriate uh, response would be. Um, yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, Ellen here. And I must say I enjoyed the presentation. Thank so you. I have questions for Jonathan and Nabila. But I'll start with Jonathan. I know some of them, you might have touched on them. But are, are these robo-chats uh, regulated and by whom? And to what extent in terms of data protection, TCF, or conflict of interest of some sort? And then for Nabila, for cell captive insurance, do you follow the same process as a macro insurance in terms of application? And uh, are they like the same, is it like the same license or there's something different? I just want a clarification. I don't want a cell captive micro insurer? Yes, or a, okay. cell captive micro. Yeah. Don't you want to take that one first? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so there are um, there, there there is new legislation with respect to robo advice that's um, that's come out and and that's what we adhere to. I think by and large, again, the principle is that a sale that goes through a website goes through a few ticks and whatever else, and we'll just turn that into a conversation. Or a sale that goes through a call center, you know, disclosures need to be made. And minimum disclosures, so we try stick as closely to uh, to that as as possible. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, actually, you, you, you know, someone coming in and auditing these processes, I think it's going to be very complicated because how does a regulator understand the complex algorithms that the PhDs <laughs> are building in the back end? Um, but, but on the other side, I think that we can show the scripting and it doesn't change. There's no, there's no variation to the scripting and we track any variation that exists. So I think it actually should be better from a regulatory perspective than the current methods and models. I'm talking about call centers well where calls are QA'd. I mean, who knows what's happening on the broker front, those conversations, you're not privy to the conversations. Having some exposure in the court, like in call centers, there's one or two uh, stories of call centers where guys, there was a, a debt consolidator, where they would flip and push, sell the product, like hectically, probably breaking every rule, and then pass it over to an administrator that would then record, uh, follow the script, Completely. It was just one of those examples where, like, yeah, I think I think the regulators are going to need to think carefully about how they take on on this new space. 
Um, and, and I don't think they've, they've got their heads around it yet, although they have written some, some very good initial policies, I think. Okay. <laughs> there is not, not much uh, scope or chance of data being hacked or mm -hmm. viruses. Or yeah, I, I mean, there are always going to be uh, data concerns. I think, obviously, when you use a channel like WhatsApp, all the data is going through their servers. So whatever you collect, they have uh, as well. Um, uh, and so I think in the long term, that, that's one side. I think the actual hacking, um, I don't think it would be any different to the, the other systems out there. I think security generally improves over time. Um, so, so I don't, yeah. I, 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 like they, they would almost have to either hack the platform or hack, hack your site. And I think most things just follow the, the, the up-to-date security protocols. So it wouldn't be any, it would probably be harder than hacking a website. Yeah. You really want to take the question on the micro-insurer self-captive application? <coughs> sure. So um, to be a self-captive micro-insurer, the process would be the same uh, in terms of your engagement with the regulator. Um, I think to uh, if you're a cell and wanting to convert to a micro-insurer, then I think you'd fall somewhere between the new license and the conversion. Um, but I, I struggled to find the reasons or to motivate why you'd want to move from a cell to a micro-insurer just because of the benefits that you have from being a cell currently. Okay, go for it, yeah. One. Hi, my name is Theo, and my question is for Nabila. Thanks for the presentation, Abila. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your presentation as part of the application process, um, the insurer would need to supply something like a five-year business plan. And I think most of us are sort of familiar with that sort of thing. But one, of, one other element that you mentioned is the transformation plan. Um, and my sense is that um, as prospective applicants, um, the industry is sort of not necessarily clued up as to what that entails. In your research and your investigations, do you have any insights as to what the transformation plan needs to address or what it needs to look into? Is it, I don't know, enhancement of financial inclusion or does it need to be 100% black owned, you know, company? Like what sort of things is the regulator looking at in terms of that transformation element of the application process? Thanks, Theo. I think the short answer is there's no prescribed um, uh, things that need to go into the transformation plan. So I think it's more about we are targeting a lower LSM market here, the low income market. So it's about how are you planning to be financially inclusive? And then how is the public going to benefit from you being a micro insurer? What do you have to offer? Um, and yeah, basically, I think that's, that's along the lines of that. But it, it's still up in the air. We only have one uh, micro-insurer that's been licensed currently. Um, so I think that would be good questions to then pose to the regulator in your initial meeting with them, what exactly are they, are they looking for? Thanks. Go ahead, yeah. 
Okay. Um, uh, my question is uh, is on Noble as well. Um, you mentioned IFRS uh, 17, and my question is, why do micro insurers need IFRS 17? Given that uh, most of the micro insurers are not necessarily listed entities, but uh, they more rather like just individual businesses. So, for example, I'll own a funeral parlor and I want to start my own insurance company, or my own micro-insurer, and I don't necessarily need to comply with RF-17. Is that a requirement that I should comply with RF-17? Unfortunately, yes. So IFRS 17 currently says that anyone who writes a contract that meets the definition of an insurance contract, which um, as a funeral parlor writing funeral policies, you would meet that definition, you would need to apply IFRS 17. Sorry. Yeah, so, so it, it's not great news, but given the nature of the contracts being risk-only and short-term and under a year, you are in the bucket of doing the premium allocation approach, so it's bad news, but it's not as bad news as for the fully-fledged life insurers writing 30-year contracts. It's, it's work, but it's not the end of the world. More questions? Hi. Hi, sorry, my name's Anton. Um, I've got a comment for Nabila and perhaps a question to the chatbot team. Uh, you know, you asked the question about whether um, microinsurance is going to be a disruptor. I sort of almost want to put it that it's probably going to disrupt us more than it's going to actually disrupt the market. The, um, I mean, if you think about the South African context where stock files have existed outside of the formal financial services market forever in a day, and we're now trying to go into that market and actually make inroads and obviously try and formalize it, I think we mustn't underestimate the sophistication that exists between consumers and the people that are distributing those products and that may need to distribute them um, in a future environment. And I suspect we might find ourselves more often than not on the wrong side of a market conduct slash policyholder protection sort of thing and, and therefore need to obviously apply quite a lot of thinking in that regard. Um, and then just maybe the question before one answers. Um, on the chatbot team, you spoke about um, conversion rates of about 5.7% at the moment. Um, I wasn't quite clear whether those were completed sales where premiums are received or whether they were just accepted and then um, one still had to get premiums um, from those clients. Depending on which way it is, what was the original accepted to get down to that completed level? Or if that was only accepted, how much drop off before we get the first premium? And sorry, John, I want to add to Anton's question, that conversion rate, is it on the 100,000 conversations? Or you did you slip the word quotes. I was wondering what the, the, the numbers there are. Yeah, so um, on, the, on the conversation point, just quickly, the conversations are not always about a quote. So it's varied. Sometimes it's a competition. Sometimes it's just a fun engagement. So that's different. The conversion rate stat was acceptance, so it excludes any policy collection. There, I think we're seeing, understandably, quite high NTU rates and the like, um, but not out of line with what you'd see via an agent. So we've compared agent sales versus the bot, and it's actually quite similar. Nabila, do you want to make a, a comment on the, the, the stock fell and the existing market and where do we know what we're doing in that space? Sure. Um, I, I think I'm that's a very good that point. Um, and I, I take your point, uh, especially because I recently saw on Facebook now that their uh, stock files are moving to WhatsApp, so you can get a WhatsApp stock file. So I definitely take your point that we need to not underestimate um, the market that we're going into and, and it could be a disruptor for us more than them. Thanks. It's a slightly different response, but I mean, one of the, the as Nabila said in the presentation, one of the aims of microinsurance is to make it a low-cost, simple structure. 
but there's a still a fair amount of governance requirements and head of actual function and external audit and internal audit. And, you know, so it's uh, having to layer on those costs still means that I can imagine some informally run insurance entities and groups being a bit reluctant to take the step up, get the four million of capital and a multiple of that and operational costs. It's, it's not quite as light. Um, and really it's going to be up to the PA. In the past, I think we're... Um, appropriately cautious about forcing a huge, heavy, expensive insurance license onto these informal sectors, which generally speaking ran pretty well, not perfectly. Um, now there's a better tool in the, the toolkit, how far much pressure is applied, uh, wait to be, we have to wait to see. More questions? While you are thinking of one more, um, Jono and Matt, uh, you said that there were 19 chatbot agents. So I'm now picturing 90 little Jonos running around the world. I don't know if that's a good thing for the world or not. Um, why 19, why not 10,000? What's, what's the constraint on, on that? Um, uh, it, it hasn't been a very long time, Dave. Um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 um, you, you do reach that point where, the, where the, the main cost that you experience is your marketing cost. And uh, at a certain point, you do get... Uh, decreasing returns on scale. Um, we, we pretty much when we launched in, um, in March, we were looking to grow at 100% per month up until the convention. We didn't quite get there, but we were very close. Um, um, but um, yeah, I, I think the point is you've got to add more products and, and, and in more spaces and I think that's ultimately where you'd get to. Yeah. I, th I think you implicitly answered my poorly asked question there. So yeah. is it a cost issue that there's a cost per bot or these 19 versions of bots doing different things? It's mm. so a big question. Why, why 19 rather than infinite? Why yeah. a number? I, I think it was just to draw uh, an analogy to a call center. So, I, I mean, it's arbitrary. You could say there's one bot, and it, but it made... It made 19 agent worth of agent sales. Okay. So you know, there, there's not like a constraint, please hold your call, it's no. important to us, a bot is waiting to get to you. Yeah. <laughs> available. Yeah. Yeah, so so that the, the data transfer um, uh, rates are quite cheap. So we, uh, we haven't really come close to seeing like, okay, now we're pushing system li limits, although I think any time you reach that, you just have to be a bit smarter with your system uh, structure. Okay. Yeah. Right, we, we are at time, but there's a question that nobody's asked, which I think does need to be asked. Yeah, sorry, can I just ask one more? Um, <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you deal with people lying? Um, what verification do you have in place to check if a person is actually saying the truth? For example, that question around uh, if a person has a standard nine but then just says, I've got a metric. Yeah. Like, how, how do you verify uh, before you quote or after you've quoted? I think that's a broader human problem uh, that exists everywhere from government to big corporates and across the board. Um, now, I, I think one of the ways that you, you can tell is that we, we try to get a very holistic view on the client. So if someone is lying about their education or salary, but, you know, we later ask them, you know, whether you've got medical aid, for example, um, you know, if you've got a degree and you earn 50 a month, but you don't have medical aid, like just softer questions that sort of contradict each other. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a problem that you have 
um, in call centers and, and across the board. I think verification of data will, um, will be an interesting space as well. Um, I mean, Facebook, for example, um, you can't fake uh, an account that was started like 10 years ago. Uh, you, you know, if someone dies on Facebook, there's like people post messages and you, you can sort of verify that to a degree. Um, so you, you might actually be able to prevent certain forms of fraud um, by looking at the broader data uh, uh, involved. Okay, so this, this has nothing to do with the new Terminator movie, which is out, but we've spoken about how massively more efficient bots are than agents. Mm. Um, isn't your uh, project a, a employer mm -hmm. or employment reducing plan? Yeah, I, th I think it's quite an age-old um, age point, uh, you know, the Luddites being the beginning of destroying machines that, that were taking, uh, taking jobs. Um, I think the, the, the fourth industrial revolution, it's showing, th it's showing skill sets that we used to believe were reserved for humans. We can, we can, can get emotion across um, and, and we can uh, offer and make decisions on, on more complex problems. I think one thing that, the comp that computers have really struggled with is the creative process. If you listen to a call center agent, um, they basically repeat the same thing over and over, make the same jokes, um, and, and I think, yeah, for humans to be repeating the same stuff over and over is not really tapping into, into our true capabilities to be creative. So I think people that have uh, boring jobs or people that can't operate at the, um, at that sort of peak level are going to experience um, trouble, you know, being employed. I think the bar is raised. Uh, I mean, an example would be a great call center agent would find a job in creating scripts and, and helping to refine the scripts and then moving on to something else. So there's much more growth happening. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not that ho hopeful for the broader economy because I, I do think that people are going to struggle to keep up with, uh, with the trends that are happening. Um, I think also if you, if you there's sort of the consumer side. Um, I, I mean back in the day, um, I think with Henry Ford II and he was chatting to uh, um, the labor unions and he was saying, check, my, check the machines, how are you going to coordinate labor when everything's run by machines? And, and, and the guy's response was, how are you going to sell the machines cars? Um, and I think that that's something that, that, that you need to bring a balance to. If, if, if it does go to the extreme and people can't find jobs, I don't think any of our bots will be buying life insurance policies. So, uh, so, so yeah, I think it's a really tough question, and I guess it, it, going back to education, you've almost got to think, how do we restructure the way that we educate people so that it's less process automated tasks and more being creative and fitting into, into the new models? All right, a bit, bit of a somber note to end on, but there's lots of exciting stuff here and lots of innovation, lots of things we can be positive about. Nabila, Matt, Jono, and especially Libba, thank you very much. Well done, guys.